So I, uh, I get the privilege of, of talking about the scriptures with you guys here this morning, which is something I'm rather fond of doing from time to time. And, uh, and you guys are in a series going through the book of 1 Corinthians. My goodness, what kind of a crazy church wants to go through 1 Corinthians? There is so much in there, and it's mildly controversial to majorly controversial on just about every page, um, and it is probably the case study of messiness of church. I mean, you, you may think you know what messy church can look like, or you might have in your head all your cynical beefs against church, but then open 1 Corinthians, and you have no idea how good you've got it. Uh, this, is, this is a messy, messy church for sure. And uh, so what we're going to do is going to look into chapter 10. If you want to jump forward there in your Bible, you're welcome to do that. I'm going to be there in just a moment. Um, one of the things that I, I love about 1 Corinthians as a pastor is it's so encouraging to me. As I think my church has problems, I think my people have problems, I think there's sin in my church. And then I read 1 Corinthians, and I'm like, you know what, we're doing just fine. We're doing Okay. Um, and, uh, and I read 1 Corinthians, and one of the things that shocks me sometimes, <laughs> lots of times when I read the Bible, is, God, why include this? If the Bible is just a giant PR promotion campaign for Jesus and for his people, this is not, this is not what you want to put in the pamphlet. This is not the promotional material you're looking for. And I find it shocking that God's willing to put all of the dirty laundry full into open air. I find it pretty surprising because if I'm being honest, when I look for like what we put on the front page of our website for our church, what I think about the stories we put up on stage and stories to tell for one another, uh, I look for the best and the brightest and the best looking and the amazing stories and all the good stuff. I mean, this is what you naturally do. But God seems quite content to take the weak and the foolish and the just flat out sinful and like broken and really sometimes quite awful and disturbing pictures of his people and present them front and center, not as a way of, of promoting, not as a way of celebrating, but a way of saying like, yeah, yeah, absolutely everyone's welcome here. Absolutely everyone. And the love of God is greater than you could ever imagine. The grace of God extends far beyond what you could ever think. And the first Corinthians is probably just one of the biggest and largest, most obvious case studies of just that very thing. And so as, we have, as you guys have kind of progressed through this thing, you've probably seen all kinds of, of dysfunction within this community, backbiting and gossip and people taking people to court and like uh, sexual behavior that it just runs across the, the spectrum of ways that deviate from the scriptures and what Jesus would call people to. Um, but, uh, but there are, when you pay attention not just a, to a pastor maybe wagging his finger at a people saying like, hey guys, knock it off. But when you pay attention to exactly how he wants to draw people out of unhealthy or broken ways of living and into right ways of living or greater faithfulness to Jesus, that's what I find quite fascinating here. And chapter 10 is, I gotta be honest with you, it is one of the most brilliant ways that I've ever seen for a leader to engage a people that is way off track and trying to bring them back on track. And he does it through the idea of story. He does it through the idea of a story. Now, to commemorate this very special season that we're in today, uh, I wanted to just acknowledge this exciting event that's coming up very, very shortly. I know we're all celebrating in our own meaningful ways, uh, but the new release of the Star Wars film is coming. Oh, was there another holiday happening around this? Is there something else going on? <sighs> I, uh, I still vividly remember the first time. In fact, uh, Return of the Jedi, and this, this dates me a little bit, Return of the Jedi was the first movie I ever saw in a theater when I was a kid. I was, I was three years old, 
And I saw it in a theater for the very first time. Three years old is way too young to take children to theaters. But my like, parents totally just rolled the dice because I was born out in southwest Nebraska. There's not a lot going on out in southwest Nebraska. And, uh, and so literally going to see Star Wars multiple times a week when it released was the routine. Like My parents went to like Star Wars and Empire and then uh, Return of the Jedi multiple times in over a two-week spectrum because there's just nothing else to do. Uh, <laughs> In southwest Nebraska. Um, and so my parents took me hoping that I'd sit through it so they wouldn't have to get a babysitter and my eyes were just like glued onto the screen and my parents tell the story. We moved quickly thereafter seeing that movie out to Oregon actually and uh, on the whole drive from Nebraska out to Oregon I was quoting the movie back at my mom and uh, telling her she was Princess Leia and I was Han Solo or Luke or whoever else and we would just quote the line back and forth, right? And, uh, and that's, that's what I vividly remember. And what is so amazing about the Star Wars trilogy, and I say trilogy because I don't acknowledge the first three um, <laughs> as official canon. What's so amazing about the Star Wars trilogy is just how quickly it wraps you up into its story. In fact, if you were to look at the, the original Star Wars, episode four, A New Hope, for those of you who haven't seen it, don't worry, you should, but, uh, well, you should worry a little. But... The opening scene, even from the very opening scene of that movie, it grabs you. You think about, if you guys can remember, after this kind of credits scroll, the first image you open up to is to like this space, and then this little spaceship, like going away from you, and this very large spaceship is coming right over the top of you, chasing it, and it's shooting these light beams, lasers at it. And, uh, and you're just already seeing something that's outside your paradigm, Something that, uh, that is grabbing your attention. And at that time, like the, the special effects were just like unheard of to be able to be seeing something like this on screen. And you're wondering to yourself, well, what beef does the big ship have with the small ship? The, the, small, the small ship that's uh, rather oddly shaped and the big ship that looks like a slice of pizza floating through the air, what exactly do they have to do with each other? And then, and then you see the small ship kind of get sucked up into, into the hull of the, the big ship, and, uh, and you see the small ship all preparing to be boarded, and eventually they do with, uh, with, with uh, men, like, like large white men, not Caucasian, but just dressed in all white, wearing this armor that apparently can't stop a single laser blast to save its life, right? So I don't know what the armor is actually for. No one really does. But they're coming through, and they're shooting back and forth, and lots of people are dying, only to eventually reveal a large black man, again, not African-American, but in suit, uh, who apparently has a really bad asthma problem. And, uh, and, and, you, and you see him encounter this lady who's got cinnamon rolls on her head, and you, <laughs> and you don't know a thing about what's going on, but you deeply care. Because you've realized you're not at the beginning of a story, but you've entered it in midstream. And there's something intense going on that even if you're a sci-fi nerd or not, it's very difficult to resist the movement of the story. And once you, once you begin to orient yourself just a little bit to where you are in that story, they've got you. And you've got to see part two. You've got to see part three. You're eventually going to go see all the new renditions that they're putting out even now. It hooks you. It pulls you into that story. And if you're a little kid with any kind of imagination or a big kid uh, with some kind of imagination, you want to be in that story. You want to join that story. And that's exactly what I did. Like everything became a lightsaber to me. Like they didn't have all this fancy technology stuff of little sticks that you could shake out that would light up and make sounds. Like we used real sticks. And it didn't matter. You, used your, you wanted to be in that story. And you saw yourself as a character in that story, and you saw yourself in the epic battle, you know, for, against the Sith, and you, like you, you saw yourself as a part of it. And the Bible functions in a very, very similar way. 
and that it is one grand story that spans a significant length of time and draws us in because of its compelling nature. And one of the problems, I should say not problem, but one of the challenges that we have living in our day today is that we can quickly think that the moment we were born or the moment we reached maturity or the moment we graduated high school or college or whatever ever significant milestone that we've had in our life was somehow the beginning of our story or the beginning of when things really got exciting in the world, at least it's the beginning of our consciousness thereof. But what's actually true is that there's been a story going on long before you and I ever showed up. And whether we're aware of it or not, whether we see ourselves as a part of it or not, the Bible is this invitation, not just to present some arbitrary historical or religious facts to you, but it's an invitation to join a story. And so whether Paul is dealing with a really messed up church or with a church that's got a little bit of its act together, he often will draw back to this grand story of the scriptures, and this is exactly what he does in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians. And so let's take a peek in there and watch how Paul is going to invite this church to see the larger story that's working out in their lives. He says this in chapter 10, starting in verse 1. He says, I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank. Uh, For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ, or Messiah. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them, and their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now, for some of you who are a little bit familiar with the Bible, know exactly what Paul is referring to here. Paul is referring to the much earlier portions of the scriptures that go all the way back. We call it the Old Testament. Even the first five books of the Old Testament were either like Torah or Pentateuch. And he's recounting a story, and multiple stories at that, that happened long before anyone in this church of Corinth ever came along. And he says from the get-go, I don't want you to be ignorant of the fact that there was a story that took place long ago that if you're at all familiar with this text, you might know quite well, but I don't want you to be ignorant of the fact that these are not just some random people played out in a religious text. These, he says, are your ancestors. Now, Ancestry typically involves bloodlines, but Paul's referring to a church in Corinth largely made up of Gentiles, and he's speaking of a story that largely involved, if not exclusively involved, Jewish people. And he's saying to these Gentile Christians, spiritually, these are your ancestors. Spiritually, this is your story. And he reminds them of a time when the people of God, long before, were in a wilderness scenario. A scenario where they did not exist in comfort, a scenario where they had just been rescued from slavery, a scenario where they had just been seen the grace of God move in their life and take them out of a place they did not want to be into a place of freedom. But, but that freedom looked like something really, really odd that they maybe didn't expect, and that's struggle and lack. And these people, though they didn't have abundance and didn't know where their next meal was going to come from next week, knew exactly that they had enough for each day. And these people had to walk out into this wilderness, somehow learning to build relationships with God and others in a process where nothing else around them is cooperating with that process. These people who have been rescued by God now have to learn to live with God and walk by faith in God, while at the same time, everything else in the known world is trying to rip them and God apart. And he's saying, I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact 
that many people have come before you and have lived out a story that's gone on long before you. And I want you to be well aware that this is, in fact, your story. This is your story. This is your story. This isn't just a story of something that happened a long time ago. This is a story that happens all the time. This is a story of a God who rescues people out of slavery. This is a story of a God who rescues people out of sin. This is a story who rescues people out of anonymity and irrelevance. This is a story who rescues people out of boredom. This is a story that finds people in the depths of brokenness and brings them into healing and redemption. This is that story. And this is a story that's still happening. It may have happened in very, very literal terms uh, in this original story a long, long time ago, but this story is still playing out here and now. And how many of you know that even following Jesus for like 15 minutes or so, you quickly begin to figure out the moment of celebration that you have, realizing that Jesus loves you, died on the cross for you, is going to give you a new life in Christ. All these are wonderful taglines and slogans that are 100% true, but the second you step into a faith relationship with Jesus is the second that all hell really breaks loose. Like you think you have problems when you don't know Jesus? Just try following him. And stuff, stuff starts getting really, really tough. Namely, because one of the things that really starts happening when you follow Jesus is you're not so much as like, consumed with caring about yourself, which there's just enough problems there, but now Jesus actually calls you blessed and considers you someone qualified to begin blessing others, and so then you don't just have your own problems to manage, but like everybody's, like the world, like you actually have, like nations and neighborhoods now actually are supposed to matter to you. And so, like, yes, you have your anxiety and your depression and getting out of bed in the morning is your, is your struggle. And yes, you have lust and try to, like, navigate through this, like, hedonistic sort of world that's constantly trying to pour out temptations onto your life and try to be faithful to all that. And yes, you have to try to scrape by, figure out a five-year plan and be, like, work hard and hustle and scrap by, but realizing the man is just keeping you down all the time. Like, yes, you have to go, like, and get by in your life. And then Jesus comes and calls you to take on much, much bigger problems than just your own life. And I don't know about you, but I've had many, many moments where I have either been up late at night, not able to fall asleep, or got up early in the morning and just thought to myself, you know what? I thought this Jesus thing was supposed to be way happier than this. I thought it was supposed to be way more satisfying than this. I didn't think it would involve people humiliating me on Facebook the way that is. I didn't think it would involve people stabbing me in the back. I wasn't entirely sure just how much money this was going to cost me, giving to people who were never grateful for it, by the way. I wasn't, that wasn't on the brochure when I signed up. And Christianity is not all pain, and it's not all suffering, but it's certainly not all roses either. And I found too many times that my life feels far more like a wilderness moment where I have to trust God day to day to day rather than he just gives me some spiritual stockpile that I know is sitting up on a hill somewhere for me, just like Scrooge McDuck's money bin or something like that, and I can just simply live off the interest. I find that I get a daily portion that is enough for today, and most of the time I just have to trust him with that. Every time I open up my scriptures and I read, because I'm a good Oregonian, I'm cynical and skeptical, and I love to look down on the, from my high stoop on anything that looks like organized religion. And every time I look at the Bible, I find so many questions 
So many questions that even if someone were to ask me of them, I'm not sure how I'd answer because I'm not sure how I'd answer them for myself. And I find that following and trusting Jesus has never come with the answer to all my questions. I was in college when I first uh, became a Christian. In fact, I was a sophomore. I was 20 years old. And I was convinced. I had a list of like top 10 questions that I needed to have resolved before this Christianity thing would even be considerable for me. Do you know how many of them got answered before I gave my life to Jesus? (laughs) Well, I should say there was one. There was one that got definitely settled. He was good, and the cross was real. Therefore, he was good. And there are so many others that weren't. And I found that so frustrating, so frustrating why I could commit my life to Jesus and he wouldn't just hand me the answer key to the scantron of spiritual life all in one fell swoop, but he hasn't. And many thousands of dollars and years of seminary education still hasn't answered all of them. And now like uh, 17, almost 18 years of following him. And I have responses, but I don't know how many answers I have. Because Jesus has invited me into a story where I don't have everything that I want but where he's generously given me everything that I need, especially for this day and this moment. And Paul's reminder is, this is the story you've been brought into. Lest you think this is a spiritual country club where your life is just gonna go up and to the right with no bumps ever. This, This is a story of a people that are brought into a greater agenda than their own comfort. This is a story where God actually cares more about our faith and trust in him, our intimacy and relationship to him and everyone else around us, than he does with the success of our careers, than he does with the size of our 401ks, than he does even with the compliance of our children, than he does even with like the, the reputation of what others might think about us. This is a God who cares about things like passionately, and some of the things that we care about, he cares about much less passionately. And this is the story we're invited into. It goes on to say, verse six, now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things just as they did. One of my favorite uh, books that I love uh, is called The Drama of Scripture, and it's written by a guy named Michael Goheen, and he has this amazing um, quote inside this book, if you guys can pull that up, where he says, if our lives are to be shaped and formed by Scripture, just like I believe Paul's trying to help his Corinthians do, we need to know the biblical story well, to feel it in our bones. He says, to do this, we must also know our own place within it, where we are in the story. And I think according to Paul's words, this is exactly what he's going at. He's saying that this story is a frame of reference so that you can have an example of what it means to walk with Jesus even in your own life here and now. And one of the things that we can really do to brutalize this book is just use it as some fortune cookie style like plethora of sayings and cliches and catchphrases and morals to simply apply to our life randomly and think that somehow life is just going to go well for us rather than a story that God is himself inviting us into to participate in. And once we see the story and see where we exist in the timeline of that story, that will give us a frame of reference and know maybe how to live in a given moment, but it may not answer every question that we have in every given moment. But knowing where you are in the story is so vitally, vitally critical. It might be the thing that won't stop your disappointments, but it will keep you from being disillusioned. Um, I always thought it was weird growing up when I would visit all my friends' houses, because when I would visit on weekends or on Sundays, I would always see my friends' dads sitting uh, watching football, like uh, on the couch or something like that, 
and uh, they would always have a beer in hand. And it seemed like every house I went to, like of my friends, uh, they had beer in the fridge, they had wine in the cupboards, and it was one of those things as a kid. I always remember, I always remember, like that was so different and weird about other houses. You know there's just other houses, you go to them and you just know there's something different about them. the smell is different, right? Uh, especially if you had friends from different cultures and their parents cooked with kind of different spices than yours did. And my mom was, she was like a Midwest lady that worked full time. And so we were lucky to get salt or pepper in any of our stuff. It was just, it wasn't a lot going on there. Um, But uh, I always remembered how odd it was to watch other kids' parents drink alcohol. And then I remember visiting my grandpa out just across the border from Southwest Nebraska in Northeast Colorado uh, to his trailer park. And I remember him being on an assisted kind of breathing thing and sucking down a cigarette. I'd met him only like once before in my life. And I remember sitting in there and my grandpa couldn't remember my name or my brother's name. And I remember him having just this can of beer that he was nursing. And I remember just in that moment, it was one of the first times as a kid where I quickly began to realize, okay, there is probably a long story behind the condition of my grandpa right now and why my dad is acting so weird around him and why we never even see him all that much and why doesn't he even know my name? I'm his grandson. And how come, how come I don't even know how many aunts or uncles that I have on this side or cousins? How come I've never met my cousins? And all these questions and for the first time I began to see just how messy and broken that side of the family was and I remember, I remember asking my dad, why don't we ever see grandpa? And why, why did he have the breathing stuff? And dad, you never have alcohol in your home. My friend's dads always do, but grandpa did, why? And I remember my dad telling me, well, when I was a kid, grandpa drank too much and it, uh, it made things really hard. And so I enjoy beer, but I've seen what it can do. And uh, I don't, I just, I just don't have a taste for it. There's something that happens when you realize where you are in the story. My family was different, but there was a reason why they were so different. And there was a reason why my family lived the way that they lived. And I now saw the purpose even of my life and where I was here and now. My dad grew up in the trailer park. I got to grow up in like a normal, like three-bedroom, two-little-bath house. My my, my grandpa was just kind of scraping by with odd jobs, but, but my dad was actually gainfully employed. My dad had to put himself through college, and, and now here I was, like, being able to just go to college as if it was just some kind of, like, an entitlement that I had. I realized I was at a point in the story where God was redeeming and working in my family. And I realized then and there, even as a young child, I wasn't going to have a lot of alcohol in my home. And it's not that I have anything against alcohol. I just realize where I am in the story. And I realize I don't want to go backwards in the story. I want to go forward. I realize that I want my family to continue growing in redemption and health and not regress back to where it had come from. And when you find your place in your story, not just of your family and your family history, because all of our family histories are different, but when you find your place in God's story, 
and realizing there's things that he saved you out of, but more importantly, there's things that he's doing in the broader story around you of your friends, in your neighborhoods, and even in the city. There's unique ways that you'll live. He goes on to the warning very strictly that when you're living in a wilderness moment with God, there's going to be natural temptations that come your way. When you're living and as broken as the Corinthians were, there's not a whole lot new under the sun. And one of the things you do when you're walking in a relationship with God where you've had this glorious moment of your salvation from the past, but trying to walk out a relationship with him in the present where everything that you might ever want isn't displayed to you, but he's just meeting you at your needs on a day-to-day basis on very practical and spiritual levels, you realize there's a few ways to kind of that you get tempted in those moments to just bail on that relationship and press the kind of escape hatch or like to get yourself out of it. One of them is idolatry. We just simply replace God or kind of recreate him in your image and figure out a God that's a little more domesticated, a little safer, a God that doesn't really ask that much of you and a God that's a lot more predictable. Another way is through sexual immorality, which is a great way just to escape your pain and pressure of your life to go into a fantasy world, whether it's in your own mind or with another person, and never have to deal with the reality of what it looks like to love God and others. You just escape into a world of lust. Another way is to test God and to simply say, okay, fine, God, I'll do this thing with you, but if I'm going to do this thing with you, if I'm going to do A, you're going to have to do B, and if you don't do B, forget about my A. But simply using God as if you can just somehow find a pressure point on him or put his arm behind his back and squeeze it hard enough to get out of what you want is not what a healthy love relationship ever looks like with him or anyone else for that matter. And testing God never ever goes well. And last but not least, if all those issues just completely fail, if all those strategies fail, you always have grumbling. You can always complain. You can always just stay with God, but never be happy about it. Never, never, ever be grateful for anything and always just see life by what you lack, not by what he ever provides. So Paul says between the idolatry and the sexual immorality and the testing God and the grumbling, don't live like this. He says this in verse 11. Now these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So he says, so if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. He says, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Say what you want about Paul, believe what you want about Christianity, or believe what you want about the message that Paul gives, the dude's brilliant. He comes to one of the messiest churches in the ancient world and reminds them of the story that they're a part of and says, you know what your problem is? You know what your problem is? your issues are so common. They are basic. Basic and common. And you know what your problem is? You think they're complicated and uncommon. You think that what you're going through is no one can get you. No one understands you. No one can empathize with you. And Paul says, no, this story's been going on a long time. And you might find creative ways to express your idolatry or sexual immorality or your grumbling or your testing of God. But I'm telling you, like, that story's just been going on a long time. And it hasn't gone well for anyone else that's gone these routes. And it's not going to go well for you either unless you realize there's no temptation that has seized you except what's common to man. And God will be faithful to you. He will be faithful to you. So as we close up, there's a couple of thoughts that I think Paul wants to leave us with as we find ourselves in God's story. Number one, I think Paul says, if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. I think Paul wants to remind these people to walk in the fear of God. 
These people that walked in the wilderness, many of them never made it out. It's not that God didn't love them, but when people refuse to cooperate with him and choose their own agendas rather than God's and live out their own story rather than his, I find it scary just how oftentimes Paul, even Jesus himself, will warn Christians of judgment against them. Oftentimes we think of judgment as reserved for all the non-Christians out there and the people not here. But Paul seems quite content to say, you know what? If you follow Jesus and you don't follow Jesus, you should be worried about that. Because you can walk with him in the wilderness and not make it out. And I realize this raises up all kinds of delicate theological questions about how, where our relationship status with God sits. And even some people like question like, well, where is salvation? Is it temporary? Is it conditional? Can you lose it? Do you have it forever? And uh, I just feel like this text is saying like, uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but, but trivialize this to your own peril. Did you know God does have a plan for you? Did you know it's going to require your trust? Do you know it's going to require you stepping out in faith and beyond what's comfortable? Do you know it's going to require struggle on your behalf? And did you know that you can press the eject button on that destiny through your sin anytime you want? And did you know that God will not always barricade you from your foolishness and sin? If you think you're standing firm, be careful lest you fall. Walking in the fear of God, it's not just treating God as some terrifying being that's ready to zap you if you don't do what's right, but it's understanding that the plans and the purposes of God, will, you, will, you will forfeit them. And they are good. Because what's beyond the wilderness, what's moving ahead in your story is a hope of something far greater than where you are here and now. And Jesus is calling you to trust him in that. But more than just leaving you in a place of terror, Paul says, oh, oh, but this thing, this temptation that you're dealing with, it's common, don't you worry. Everybody goes through it. You might like to think yours is very unique, will let you feel like a unique little snowflake, you know, that's different from everyone else in the world, that's fine, but, but you're common. You're very common, and your temptations are common, and I'm telling you this, God will be faithful. You walk in the fear of God, and you trust in the faithfulness of God. And it's almost as if, like, Paul is ramping up your anxiety. Oh, crud, I better fear him. And then he's soothing it back down. Yes, but God is faithful. Oh, geez, I need to keep in step with Jesus. But oh, Jesus has got me. Oh, like, I cannot mess with Jesus. Like, I can't, nope, I don't want to, like, disobey him. Oh, but you know what? He's faithful to the faithless. And if you can live in that moment of fear and trust, taking Jesus seriously, but knowing that he takes you far more seriously than you take him, I think we find the sweet spot in God's story where we find the fulfillment of everything that he has for us and we experience the intimacy of a love relationship with him and we keep ourselves from living out the dysfunction of the first Corinthians and living beautifully out the righteousness of Jesus that cannot just transform your life but a community and not just a community but a city. Worship team, you guys are welcome to come up. (laughs) 
I don't think there's any more beautiful thing that a people can do than to live out a story that's bigger than their own. And to consider this story and to see where they might be able to find themselves in it. And if you find yourself needing to join this story, I'd love to invite you to do that. If you'd like to take the first steps of following Jesus and trust him, knowing that it's his grace, not your effort, that's going to get you involved in this story and bring you into it, adopt, him, adopt you into his family, then by faith you can just say simply, Jesus, I trust you and I want to follow you. And I trust that my past and my sins and my mistakes, you wipe them out by the cross and your grace will now be faithful to me as I walk out my life with you. But if you're in the other category of people that find yourself in this wilderness, and if you can identify along with me that life is not always easy and God is not always simple and that walking in the fear of God and trusting in the faithfulness of God sounds so easy on a PowerPoint slide, but much more challenging in real life. If you find yourself pressing the eject button and just trying to replace God or escape God or mistrust God or just using sin in all kinds of ways to numb yourself to how painful life can be, I want to invite you to a better story than just pursuing your own pleasure. I want to invite you to a better story than just building your own life. And I want to invite you to a better story than just finding the hedonistic heaven that Portland is trying to create itself to be. I want to invite you to Jesus' story, which is a story where he's making all things new. And he'd love to start with you. Or he's inviting people to lay down their lives, give themselves away, and trust in a God, no matter how crazy this world gets, who will be faithful to the end. We have a communion that we're gonna take together. And there's a station uh, towards the back and uh, up here on the stage as well, where you can uh, come and participate in the Lord's Supper by uh, consuming the cracker and the juice, which represents Jesus's body and his blood that was broken and shed for you. And uh, this is a very small and tangible way where we recognize not just the story of God that's taken place, but we also recognize our place in it. We're grateful to the God that has brought us into the story and we're trusting him to be faithful to us as we walk through it. Father, I wanna thank you for this church. I wanna thank you for all these people. And I wanna ask God that you would draw us into your story. Because some of us have been really locked in on worries and anxieties and stresses and details that in the big picture don't matter. Some of us have let go of things and forgot about things that really do. Holy Spirit, would you work in our hearts? Remind us of our ancestors, encourage us. God, even this morning, we have a great cloud of witnesses of men and women who are, have gone long before us suffered as we have, been tempted as we have. God, I thank you there's nothing that any of us is going through that you can't meet us in. Jesus, we thank you that you're the faithful one that's walked exactly as we have walked, but yet you never succumb. So we thank you that you're faithful to meet us exactly where we're at, and we trust you. Jesus, is in your name, for your glory and your amazing story that we want to live. Amen.